All right, turn in your Bibles to Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1. I heard a joke today that happiness is sitting next to someone who knows where Nahum is. (laughs) Nahum is over near Habakkuk. The book of Nahum gives us a portrait or a picture of God's character. He's in the Minor Prophets. And it's a small three-chapter book written in poetic form, written by Nahum, who is a prophet of Elkosh. Nahum is given a message by God to comfort the people of Judah. What is that comfort? It's the destruction of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians. I put this slide together for you, and it gives a timeline as to the book of Nahum. And you'll see that 722 B.C. is when the Assyrians conquered the Israelites. And the book of Nahum is written between 663 and 612. So they have been under the rule of the Assyrians, under the thumb of the Assyrians for quite some time. And this is kind of like a book or a part two of the book of Jonah. How many of you guys remember the book of Jonah? And Jonah went to Nineveh, and he said, you need to repent, you need to repent. This was 150 years before the book of Nahum is written. So this is kind of where we are um, in the timeline. And the Ninevites repented at that time and turned from their sins. So they've had another 150 years, about three generations, and they've gone back to their evil ways uh, for their cruelty and their mass crime, mass, uh, massive war crimes. And here's a map to give you an idea. So they basically controlled from Nineveh all the way down to Thebes. They had a massive land that they controlled, significant portion of land. Also, during this time, Nineveh has been expanding its city. It's been um, incorporating waterworks. They've put up bigger walls, and they've really fortified themselves so much so that they feel they're indestructible. So with this background in mind, Nahum is called to bring the message from God to the Israelites about the Assyrians. The message is that God is going to destroy the capital of the arrogant Assyrian empire. Chapter 1, we see a prelude to the battle. 2 through 3, we move from preview to actual battle. And because this is full of judgment and woe, it's been considered by some to be, um, to be war poetry or even a taunting of the Assyrians. So we're going to read Nahum 1, 1 through 8, and it's a poem, and it's concerning the character of God. Let's read this. Nahum chapter 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? 
His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversary, of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Let's pray. Almighty God, in this passage, you have set before us a mirror that shows how dreadful your wrath is. May we be humble before you and cast ourselves down, that we may not be cast down by your overwhelming power. Grant us that we may be, find this as an instruction, an instruction manual. Be really Help us to be prepared for repentance and to avoid that punishment which we daily deserve through our sins. In the meantime, we pray that we will be transformed into the image of your Son, and put off all our depraved lusts and be cleansed from our vices until we will at length appear in confidence before you gathered among your children, that we may enjoy the internal inheritance of your heavenly kingdom, which has been obtained for us by the blood of Jesus. Amen. So how can we be comforted? Self-help books abound. Some of the biggest book sections in any bookstore are your self-help sections. And people ask things like, um, I want to feel better, and these books will teach you how to feel better in five easy steps, or um, they're full of these unbiblical topics, but they're also full of self-esteem and other pseudoscientific themes. So some suggestions that they offer are things like, take these pills so you don't have to remember what happened in the past to avoid thinking about bad experiences, or you have the five steps to a happier you, or just ignore that bad stuff. Or wake up every morning and give yourself words of affirmation, right? Look in the mirror and just tell yourself how wonderful you are, right? These are some of the self-help books that the world offers us when we struggle. Nahum is written to God's people who are oppressed and struggling. They feel unsafe and they're beat down. And God is providing them a vision of comfort through Nahum in an unexpected way. Comfort and relief is brought to God's people when God takes vengeance on their enemies and then is a shield to hide behind. For an oppressed Israel who have been judged by their enemies, they didn't need these empty platitudes. They didn't need someone to come up to them and pat them on the back and say, it's okay, I just hope you'll feel better. They didn't need something like, um, just think positively about yourself, Israelites. It's going to be okay. Things are great. What they needed was a vision of the mighty Jehovah God of the Israelites. They needed a vision of this warrior who was going to save his people. And when we find ourselves in struggling with life and and the issues that come up, our struggles um, can range from illness to poverty to um, sickness and to oppression. And all these things, we need to look to the powerful warrior God for our comfort. If I can get this to move forward. Or maybe we broke it. Oh. Because God, the divine warrior, carries a sword and a shield, you can find comfort. You can find comfort because God carries a sword. What, would, what I would like to highlight first is that the God that is mentioned here is Yahweh usually indicated in your Bibles with a small capital L-O-R-D. 
capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles, usually. That means it's the covenant God that's being mentioned here. God is reminding his people about who he is. And the language here is reminiscent of the book of Exodus, which we had Gary read to us this morning. And it talks about God saving the Israelites and freeing them from Egypt in the book of Exodus. The parting of the Red Sea and the voice of God on Mount Sinai, when God came down on the mountain with clouds and smoke. During the time of Nahum, there was a religious reform that had just begun. The King Josiah had recovered the, the commandments, and he started following the book of the law. So the Israelites had kind of remo- moved back into a relationship with God. So they had just come from where they were being judged by the Assyrians, and now they have repented of their sins and moved into this posture of trusting God. And so this reform had begun, the nation repented, and were back in relationship and seeking his protection. And in order to be comforted, they had to recognize who God is. Today, we can be comforted knowing that God carries a two-edged sword. One edge is his jealousy, and the other, his vengeance. So let's read verse 2. It says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath. For his enemies. What do you think about when you hear that? When you read that verse? What do you think about when you hear that God is jealous? Though many of us will think of this on purely negative terms, right? On human terms, even. Because for humans, jealousy is almost always wrong. Yet for God, it's not. Let's define God's jealousy. God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. So for God, this is, a, this is a desirable attribute. It is not wrong for God to seek his own honor because he fully deserves it. It is wrong for humans because humans, in humans, it is prideful. In God, he deserves it. If you read Isaiah 48, 11, it says, My glory I will not give to another. The jealousy of God also arises from his love of and for his people. He is is jealous of his people, lest they should serve any other God or any man as their Lord. And he is jealous for his people, should any approach with malicious intent or attempting to harm them. The jealousy of God also ties into God's wrath. The vengeance of God can be defined as furious. It says, an avenger is Jehovah and a master of fury. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. Further, as aimed at his adversaries, an avenger is Jehovah with respect to his adversaries. And part of two, it says, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. It is surprising to think that God, who loves all that is good and right, would hate everything that is opposed to it. Is it surprising to think that? That God who loves all that is good and all that is pure and all that is right, that he would hate everything that opposes it? I don't think it is. Why is God going to pour out his wrath on the Assyrians? Now, Nahum will list some of the sins that Nineveh has committed, and it's going to be in our future chapters, but I'm going to read some quick ones really quick. 
They're plotting against God in verse one nine or in chapter one nine, verse eleven. They also are idolatrous. They they have vile behavior. They shed blood. They lie and plunder. They enslave nations. They're presumptuous and they're cruel. Needless to say, these guys were some pretty cruel people. And there's archaeological evidence that reflects this truth. One of the uh, subscriptions that we have about how they treat their captives is from um, is basically from one of their campaigns in, in Egypt and how they tried to quell a rebellion. It says this, Tanis and all other towns which had associated with them to plot, they did not spare anybody among them. They hung their corpses from stakes, flayed their skins, and covered them the walls of the towns. So these, these Assyrians would take people, hang them up on poles, cut them up, use their skins to cover their walls as evidence of how superior they are. Does anybody remember in 2004 when the insurgents shot and killed that contractor convoy? This was near, the, near Fallujah. This is kind of what kicked off the battle for Fallujah. And what we saw was these insurgents took the bodies of these contractors, hung them up from the bridge over top of the Euphrates. These, these charred bones. You know that this happened 246 miles south of the ancient ruins of Nineveh. Just as the world was shocked by this barbaric treatment, in the time of Nahum, this, this type of treatment was also barbaric, but it was more commonplace. So this is the kind of people that the Israelites are paying tribute to that are living under. This is the thumb that they're living under. And so knowing that God is a God that's going to, that is jealous and avenging, it provides immense comfort for them to know that this God is not going to let that type of behavior stand. But we also have a second part of this jealous and avenging God. We have that he is slow to anger. Let's turn to chapter three or verse 3 in chapter 1. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He has proved himself that he is slow to anger. For 150 years, he's let these Assyrians continue on after their repentance. He is slow to anger, yet... They went back to being cruel and vicious. And now I see two levels of comfort in this passage, or in the fact that he is slow to anger. There's two levels that we can look at it. All right, one, because he is slow to anger, he gives us time for repentance. The Israelites were often out of God's favor because of their idolatry and sin. So God would send them prophets to warn them over and over and over again to turn back to God. And I like how 2 Peter 3.9 sums this up. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. God is slow, not like we would count, not how we would see it, but how he sees it. And then the second level of comfort in God's slow to anger is that in times of suffering and struggling, we can take, take hope because God's timing is not our own timing. 
So it may seem that evildoers are getting away with everything. It seems like they are prospering, taking advantage of us. However, we know that God is slow in anger for the purpose and that he will not let the guilty go unpunished. That's another picture of who God is. Have you ever seen those church signs? You know, have you ever been driving around and you see the church signs that have the words on the side? They always have a catchy slogan or they have some kind of thing. Usually most people use them to, to advertise their sermon series coming up and they try to say something funny, right? Well, I was driving along a while back and I saw this one sign that said, no rules, just Jesus. And as I drove, I thought about this, and I'm not sure why they put that up there or what their reasoning was behind that, but I don't think it's really true. I don't think that's really a really accurate statement. And the problem I'm noticing is that we are trying to make God in our own image because people continually twist the character of God, and he's always under attack. It seems that, if there, are, that there are two extremes. All right, Some people will say that God is love, and would never do anything to harm anyone. They would, picture, they would like to picture God as a grandfather figure, right, with a great white beard and maybe handing out presents on certain holidays, right? That's how some people like to see God. Others like to see God as this kind of warrior sitting up in the clouds holding lightning bolts and throwing them down on people. And we have these two extreme images. Neither one of them are the biblical image that we see here in Nahum. But both of these images that they've created reflect human attributes. That's how a human would respond, but not our God. Because if God is a grandfather that only winks at sin, then we have no hope of justice. But if God is all anger, then we have no hope because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we have to... See God as he tells us who he is. All right, so we have two comforts from the fact that God carries a sword. Our comfort in knowing who God is as a divine warrior. So like the ancient Israelites, we too are struggling and suffering in this life because we're marching like the Israelites from Egypt into the promised land. And we are struggling because we are in that in-between point. They said that Christians are being martyred more in this century than any other century before it. So more Christians are dying now than they have ever in the past. And I'm often reminded of Revelation 6, 9 through 11, when I see that type of martyrdom. Revelation 6, 9 through 11 says this, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You can see that this longing for justice goes from Genesis all the way through Revelation. We need to have a God who carries a sword. We need to have a God who is avenging and wrathful against his enemies. And our comfort comes because he brings that judgment on sin and sinners. All the wrongs are going to be made right and new in Christ. Would you be comforted 
when you are being oppressed and spit on by this world, when you are being mocked in the streets, when people write nasty op-eds in the newspaper about Christians, would you be comforted? Dwell on the divine warrior. Dwell on God because we can trust that he will fulfill justice and we can imitate his character by being slow to anger ourselves. Now, halfway through verse 3, we have a transition. It's from God's character to his power. If you look at, at this passage, you can see that there's kind of a transition in the middle of verse 3. And it goes from his character to his power. And it, what, I, what I've termed it is God's shield. God's shield is his power. So let's read verse 3b. So he said, He will no means kill, clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Okay, I love this image. I'm not going to lie. I've been thinking about this image for a long, long time because it's such an, a powerful view of who God is. And I remember when I was deployed that we would walk on this dust and it would poof up because it was so fine and thin. It was like talcum powder and it would just puff up everywhere I walked, right? And so if you've ever been deployed, you know that that's how the ground is. Well, this image is like that, except that God's, the puffs that come up are the clouds that he's walking on. That's how high and great he is. I mean, it's just such a wonderful picture of how high he is. Now, we read Exodus 34, 5, um, but I want to re, re, re-attack it, so to speak. But let's go back to Exodus 20, or 34, sorry, Exodus 34. And I wanted to, to read this because it highlights that this is not a new thing. The book of Nahum um, and Nahum's vision is not some kind of new vision of who God is. So 34, verse 5, and of course you'll want to keep your finger in Nahum because that's where we're going to stay. But we're going to drop in here, and it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He's standing there in the clouds. Once again, Nahum is calling the Israelites back to that Exodus picture of God delivering the law to his people. So I call this section in Nahum comfort because God carries a shield because the shield represents God's protection for his people. God's powerful control of nature is a shield of protection for us. God, the covenant God, controls the weather. From his power in writing the law for the people of Israel through the storm, but God also rebukes the sea. So I think about when the Israelites were crossing the Red Sea. God pushed it up on either side. And for a non-seafaring nation, Israel seemed to have a distrust for the ocean. They seemed to have a distrust for the sea because of the chaotic nature of it. They kind of considered it untrustworthy. And whenever you see that reference in Revelation, they talk about the sea turning to glass, right? And, and that, that, that image that they're giving you is an image of peace because it's chaotic for people who don't travel on the sea very much and watching the ocean and how it's, how it's, un, it's not um, firm is, is, uh, is what you see here. So I kind of skipped ahead to talk about it, but let's go back to verse 4 and read it. He says, He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. And then he says, Bashan, uh, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of the Lebanon of Lebanon withers. 
Think about that, the power that it would take to wither up a big redwood oak. This would be, that'd be insane. That's, that's a lot of power in one thing, but he made them. These massive trees were impressive, and God's ability to wither them is another reference to his great power. So we see the Exodus story kind of brought up in here, and we see how he destroys, or how he's more powerful than the, the, the trees of Lebanon. And he also talks about or referencing, referencing his great power. Now, why do you think the disciples were amazed when Jesus calmed the storm? Well, it's because in the New Testament, they're looking back at the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, that was God's authority. God had the authority over the wind and the waves. And for Jesus to be able to calm the storm, that's just another indicator of, of Jesus' deity. And his presence with us, he, his protection for the disciples um, in that situation, but also his presence for our protection. Now let's look at verse 5. It says, The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth le- heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Now, I find myself often, as I'm driving, looking at these hills in Sierra Vista. Like, all the time, I'm just looking at these mountains and just enjoying the beauty of them and how massive and powerful they look. Can you imagine them starting to shake and collapse? Or like snow, like as if they were mountains of snow and melting before the sun. That's what the image that we're getting here is. So if all the hills around Sierra Vista started to shake and collapse... That would be a very scary event for all of us because that is amazing amounts of power. Ancient Israelites often looked to the mountains and the hills as a sense of permanence and safety. This description shows us that nothing can stand in the way of God's mighty power. All the things of this world are nothing compared to the mighty God. What are you finding yourself putting your comfort in? Are you finding comfort in temporary things? Are you finding safety in the things of this world of security systems or whatever. Guess what? Security systems fail. People fail. People are, can be cruel. And in Psalm 121, 1 through 2, it says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. As you drive through Sierra Vista today, as you go home, look at the mountains and think about where does my help come from? Do I look to these mountains for my safety, for my security? My safety comes from the Lord. Verse 6 continues to drive this message home. It says, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? The description of the mountains melting before God, rivers drying up, mighty oaks shriveling up before the wrath of God, nothing can stand. Do you hear this power in in these words? It reminds me of the book of Job after Job has been complaining for, for passage after passage after passage. And finally, God says to him, like, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? And I think it was more of a loving where were you and not like, where were you, dude? Right? But it was more like, I couldn't possibly explain to you all that it took to make the world. And so you see, once again, God is re- reminding us of his divine power. Now let's read verse 7. Because this is kind of feels out of, out of place, does it not? It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. What drives Nahum 
to declare in the middle of this oppression against his own people, his servitude to this brutal people who skin people alive and throw their skins on walls, what causes him to look up and say, the Lord is good? Now, there's a couple of ways that we can look at it. So one, it's almost like he knows our objections that are playing out in our mind. Like if this is God, this wrathful, vengeful person that we're reading about, if this is God, oh no, right? The whole world will face this terrible judgment that Nineveh faces. But God is also good. So it could be a contrast. Or God is good, and because of his goodness, he is wrathful and pours out judgment. God is jealous for good. So in November, when we have our Bible study, I want you guys to be thinking about the wrath of God in the book of Nahum, because we're going to be halfway through Nahum when we start in November on Thursday. First Thursday in November, we'll start our Bible study here at 630. That was your your, um, advertisement. That was a commercial, right? But what I want you to do is I want you to be thinking about this, because this is a tough topic. And so is it that God is is wrathful and good? Or is it that God is good, and because of his goodness, he pours out wrath against the things that are not good? He pours forth his judgment because God is jealous for good. This, sound, you know, this sounds kind of confusing, but if we think of God as holy, as his one attribute, and that all else pours out of that holiness, because God is holy, goodness is what proceeds from his essence. I want you to think about the sun. So God's essence sends out rays and illust- um, illuminates things. It, wor- it warms things and it burns things and it causes chemical reactions. The sun, when it pours forth its light, it has multiple things that happen, but from that one source of light comes these things. And that's what I think of when I think of God's holiness. It emanates out and whatever it touches, it shows that it's good or it's love or it's it's peaceful, or this or that, and it comes out, or it's wrath or vengeance against the things that are not good. Sin. The source is the same, but the effects are different. So for people that are facing the brutality of the Assyrians, this is a comfort. Because God is for good, we can run to him for safety. He is the guardian of his people, In the day of distress, God is this stronghold. Not only that, God knows who takes refuge in him. This is so powerful. If you look at verse 7, it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And then the next line, it says, He knows those who take refuge in him. That's that's immensely comforting. It's not just any random person. He knows those who come to God for their safety. He preserves the faithful those who have jumped on this lifeboat, who is Jesus Christ. Now let's turn to verse 8. Verse 8 says, But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Nineveh is going to be completely destroyed. At this time when they're reading this, they don't know that for sure. But we know it because we have historic evidence of the destruction of Nineveh. And guess what? Nineveh is not a city that today has been destroyed and has been permanent. So you remember that story in the New Testament where Jesus was asleep on the boat. He was sleeping at the end of the boat, 
and a storm had risen up, and the disciples were trying to control the boat, but it was just a huge storm. They were feeling, they were getting swamped, basically. I can just imagine a bunch of the disciples trying to pour water out of the boat as fast as they could, and Jesus is asleep. And they run up to Jesus, and they say, Master, Master, wake up. Do you not care that we are about to perish? And Jesus gets up, and he calms the storm. And it says the disciples were amazed. And they say, who is this that even the winds and the rain obey him? They are amazed because the Old Testament pointed to God as ruler, and Jesus just did what God does. Jesus is God. It's God who cares for his people, who came and lived among us, experiencing all our pains and struggles. God is not some distant deity throwing lightning bolts down, but he came and lived with us. He is that shelter that we can go to to find comfort in the storm. So from this opening of the book of Nahum, this 1 through 8 that we have read today, we get this picture of God as a mighty warrior. He's holding this sword of justice, and it's not a fast-moving sword. It's going slow, and he's destroying what needs to be destroyed. But on the other hand, he has this shield, and it's the shield that we can hide behind. And unlike modern caricatures of God, who is this tottering old grandpa, or ineffective, or a big Santa Claus, this God of Nahum, our mighty God, is involved in his creation. God is involved in redeeming his people from sin. We can have great comfort in God's justice. If you are suffering right now, there's a lot for us to dwell on in this passage. God is at work making things new. In Jesus Christ, we see the sword and the shield in action. You see Jesus lashing out at sin and at the same time providing comfort for the downtrodden. And this is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This is the same God in the Old Testament that we read in Nahum, that we read in the New Testament. This is the same God that was with us and suffered on, on, um, on Calvary. This is the same God who destroyed the Ninevites because of their wickedness and this evil. So we look at this image of God for comfort. He's at war with evil, and in his timing, he will make things right. That's our hope. That's the hope that we have. I'm going to end with a, a short anecdotal story. I was, I was taking the youth on this mission trip, and there was a volunteer that was, that was riding with us from a different church. And we were going along talking about things. And I think we got on the topic of um, sin and God's judgment of it and how um, homosexuality is a sin and how we, you know, how we handle it. And that, that was the kind of conversation. Well, we were sitting there talking, and he goes, well, he's like, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. And I looked at him, you know, kind of crossway, like, I stopped, right? And then the whole, the whole van got really, really quiet, right? All these, you know, all these youth, there was probably about 15 youth in this van with us, and they all got real silent. And they started going, oh, because they know we had talked about this over and over again, how God is immutable. He's never changing. And so I had to explain to him how the, what the difference is and, and how God is the same and how, how you can understand the, the same God in the Old Testament as the New. But that's our modern perception in, in, in this world. That's what, that's what people see. Even learned biblical scholars get this confused. So when you read Nahum, don't think of this as a different God. 
This is our God. And it's written here for our comfort. I mean, I can, if you were in a, in a Middle Eastern country right now getting murdered for your faith, you would say, I need a God who's just because this is unjust what's happening. And for us to find comfort in our lives, we can run to him as our stronghold. So if you would find comfort, run to him for your, for your stronghold. Let's close in prayer. Lord God Almighty, we, uh, we are so grateful for what you have offered us. You have offered us the comfort of your son. You have offered us God who is a divine warrior, making things new, destroying the unjust, destroying wickedness that so corrupts our lives, our families, and breaks up homes. So Father God, we we pray that anyone here that, that may not feel the comfort of God, that they would look at this divine warrior and say, you know what, that is my God. That is my powerful warrior who fights for his people. So, Father God, I pray these things uh, humbly. I, I beg that you would be with us this week as we go from here, that you would encourage us to share the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the God of all creation, that we would share him with those that we run into, that we would not twist or confuse the character of God with some other character or some other vision of who we think God should be, but rather who God says he is in his word. All these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.